Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. And we are back. How's everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast. Mr. Jeff Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Real quickly, just wanted to uh, say thank you to everybody that's been listening and, and helping us out by giving us a rating and review mm-hmm. on the podcast or on the iTunes podcast uh, app. Uh, that helps us out a lot, and it's really um, helped put us on the map. I think that's we've talked about many times how the algorithm works with iTunes. Um, so if you do want to help us out and you do like the work we're doing here and you want to support us, feel free to go to your iTunes podcast app and give us a rating and review. And um, we hope that's five stars mm-hmm. helps us, uh, you know, get the word out. And, um, you know, we spend a lot of time for these podcasts. So yeah. that would be great for us. So today we're going to be going. So people just keep sending in a lot of questions. Right. So they like these uh, question and answer, um, you know, uh, I guess, Q&A's that we've been doing. Mm-hmm. I think it's good also because we could just see what's really on people's minds and it, we just get to answer them live on the show. So if you do want to um, have a question answered on the show, feel free to DM me. I usually compile them in a list and then when we have a Q&A session, um, I'll just pull them up. That's at Focus Compound. Yep, that's at Focus Compound. And if you do want to reach out to me via email mm-hmm. for anything, info at focuscompounding.com and Jeff says Gannon on investing at gmail.com. So. Alrighty. First question. What steps do you take to mitigate biases like confirmation bias slash overconfidence in your research process and when making investment decisions? Good question. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, and it's a tough one. I guess confirmation bias is the one we could talk about the most, which is um, once I formed an opinion about some stock, presumably a bias stock, I like it. Um, so something like the safety of the stock, I think it's yeah. safe or something like that. Um, do I find things that reinforce that view? And uh, ignore things that that don't reinforce it. Yeah. Um, and and that's probably one of the most difficult things. Uh, one of it is talking with other people. Uh, often the people the people want to talk with you for two reasons. One, they really are interested in the stock sometimes, uh, but two, they're really perplexed by why you would pick some stock or something. So they'll talk to you a lot about the negative things that they see and, and the risks that they see. Yeah. And even if they want to buy the stock, they they're usually talking to you about the risks that they see. The upside is pretty obvious that way. So I would say a lot of it does come from that from people. Um, talking to me about some idea that they're aware that I'm interested in or that I write about. Often I don't necessarily own it first. Um, and I do usually look at stocks for a pretty long time before buying them. So there's that kind of awareness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly read lots of things from different people and try to read the negative things that they have to say. About I was going to say, wouldn't yeah. you say a big part also is like understanding why the shorts are shorted and right. kind of their thesis and their mm-hmm. thought process. Absolutely, yeah. And we have... Um, you know, some things, some stocks I've talked about before are, I suppose, more controversial that way, seen as risky. A lot of them aren't, um, and those could be harder, the ones where um, they're sort of, you know, we focus on overlooked stocks that manage accounts, and some of them are literally just that they're overlooked. And most people yeah. uh, that I talk to don't have anything negative to say about the business or that it's risky. 
they just um, might think that it's not especially cheap or, or that it is very small or they just haven't heard of it. It's not the most exciting thing. So what Those would you think? What would you think about like for like KEWL or like NACO where right. there's probably not a lot of people that write about it, right? right? There's not a lot of people that know about the stock and there's probably sure. not a lot of people that actually short the stock. Like I've never seen a short report on any right. of those companies. That's true. Yeah. So uh, NACO is a good one though because there's a lot of people who are short something related to coal. And I did read a lot about, just so people know, there's a company, Westmoreland Coal, which as we're recording this, I think may have, as we're recording it, just emerged from bankruptcy, or at least when you're hearing this, they will have emerged from bankruptcy. They briefly were in bankruptcy. And some of their business is similar to what NACO does. So that's a good one. I, I did read a lot about that company's bankruptcy and why it happened and things like that. So comparing it a lot to um, NACO and what could go wrong with them. Um, it is, but still there is the risk of confirmation bias there because like they had a lot of um, obligations that NACO doesn't. And it's very easy. So doing that, you can be very easy to fool yourself then because you're like, well, their situation at uh, NACO isn't as bad as as it was at Westmoreland a year or two or three ago. Sure. Um, But that doesn't really prove that it's worth buying it. I think at one point, you know, because it had this risk of bankruptcy, it probably traded at some incredibly low price um, uh, and people were excited by it. But I I did read a lot of the... um, I found going back as many of the positive write-ups of Westmoreland as I could to see what people got wrong and stuff. That's Actually, I find that to be better than reading the short thesis a lot of times, mm-hmm. is to find something that has performed badly and read the good things that people wrote about it. So I actually did that with KWL from about 10 years ago. I could find a couple of things where people were very positive on it about 10 years ago, and the stock didn't perform well for 10 years. It was very flat. Sure. So... It was interesting to read and see, well, what did they see in it 10 years ago? Are they the same things I'm seeing in it today? That sort of thing. So sometimes that's better is that when you know the outcome using the Internet now because all yeah. those things are permanent, you can look back and see what the people got wrong in terms of the long uh, uh, cases. What it. about like what they got right as well where you can go back and like on VIC or, or mm-hmm. wherever and um, you know see past reports that they wrote about the stock? Yeah, yeah, you can see all those things, and that's very good that way. A lot of th- the most useful information I get, I would say, for reading reports and things are not about stocks today, um, but sometimes they're even about a stock today. The information is useful, but they're writing about it from five years ago or something. A lot of times it's very helpful for learning about the management and things like that. I do um, – I mean, we use the Internet very heavily, so when we yeah. have an idea about something like like um, a stock that, that – you know, I mean, I did a pr- – a good amount of research on like Timberland stuff and why people are positive on it or negative for a long period of time um, for something like cool. It's true that there's not much. There was some from value investors. I found probably, I probably read five or six pretty extensive write-ups on it in some form on KEWL. Yes. Yeah. Including one thing written up by a um, now a member of the board. So actually there's a member of the board. Now he got on the board as part of the dissident um, slate investors, uh, uh, the head fund uh had uh was about a 25 percent owner or something of it and they won a vote and one of the people they got on the board happened to have written a book about value investing and there's an example he gives in the book which does not say that it is uh that it's cool that it's kwl uh-huh. that, that stock ticker but you can tell from how he's describing it that it was yeah so you can get this old case and it's from before he was on the board and stuff so it does give you some example so it's presented like a hypothetical case but if you actually read yeah it, you, can you tell know they're talking about a real details. life situation yeah, 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 absolutely <laughs> so there are even things like that that you can find yeah interesting 
Okay, cool. And I think also just like being aware of it is is a huge step as well. Like yeah, being aware I'll, of like the po- the potential confirmation bias and how you could be subjected to it is, is yeah. huge as well. And a lot of times being aware of your own past mistakes and your own sort of biases, you personally, even more so than what you read in like behavioral finance things or stuff like that. I think a lot of times people are aware of those things. Um, they like to read about things about, um, you know, uh, you know, thinking fast and slow or whatever, yeah. those sorts of things. But the truth is, as the people who wrote those sorts of books will tell you, they know all those things, they've studied them, and it hasn't really helped them to not have those biases. Yeah, they still tough. have those ways of thinking. And so often it's useful to think about your own biases. Like I'm very aware of the ways in which I do make certain, uh, tend to make the same mistakes over and over again, but also in some things that a lot of people might make the mistake, but I tend not to. So, for instance, I would tend, uh, I'd be much less likely to pay too much for a stock than most people would for a popular stock. But on the other hand, I, something I saw is um, a good business, safe, cheap enough, whatever. I might misjudge the durability of that business or something like that if there was a lot of like debt or something like that. So Uh that's something I've been very aware of is the downside risk from sort of leverage things. And that's because of past cases whether it's Weight Watchers or Barnes and Noble I would say there's Weight Watchers well. come to mind yeah because yeah, I, I know those are two that come to mind yeah, yeah those two stocks Weight, Weight Watchers and Barnes and Noble are good examples of yeah. the kinds of mistakes I made in the past yeah. and, and if you're interested in um, you know cognitive biases mm-hmm. start, study Munger yeah um, that will help you out and That's you know what's good. interesting you're talking about thinking slow and fast I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure the author of that book he I think I read an interview once that he actually hated the book. Like he yeah. couldn't stand it. Like he did not like the book. He didn't think it was like good quality. Uh-huh. He didn't think people would like it or benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And it's been such a popular book. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Alrighty. Next question. What do you think about the recent Fed actions? <laughs> I, this guy really asked somebody. He was just he kidding. Did ask he, he was kidding around. Okay. Um, because they uh, didn't lower or they didn't raise interest rates today. Okay. But then he goes on. Tell us more about your sleuthing. Techniques. Sleuthing. Yeah. Mm-hmm just google maps question mark <laughs> no there is more than google maps so um well i just meant i guess i just mentioned one there was a hypothetical yeah. example in a book which wasn't really hypothetical in a very long time ago we put out a checklist like that was kind of like a roadmap yeah for like how to find all like sort of like the steps on that we go through with the investing process mm-hmm. and yeah. a lot of people ask about those sorts of things so um yeah i guess we could go over some of them the most basic things so the most basic things are find the names of all the people involved whenever you find any sort of name of someone um, there's always a proxy statement, which can be filed a couple different ways with the SEC, but is usually um, filed as some sort of, um, it'll be listed as a 14 in some form. So it'll be like DEF 14, and then there'll be a letter at the end of that. And um, that'll give you information on proxy stuff. It can also appear in the 10K. Um, but it'll give you information on who owns how much of the stock. Um, and they'll have things like a name and address for those people, which will be like an office address or something. But by Googling those names and things like that, anyone connected to the company, you can start to see if there are family connections, if they're business connections, and look into the history. Like, okay, if you find out that this person uh, owns a business which is in the same sort of business, so they own an aerospace-related business or something, and they're a 5% owner of this stock, and this stock does something related to aerospace. Okay, well, is this a business relationship that they invested in years ago can you find out why and usually you can if you google around and stuff enough um there'll be some sort of mention of it so people's names are great um specific locations of things are great so i've said before i do pay attention to where a company's headquartered where it says its offices are uh, a lot of things just like to that get like a general history. idea of like the the oper- like where they operate in and stuff. Yeah. yeah and trying to figure out more about the history because so often there'll be a local paper that will cover it more or something like that you know 
Um, that comes from just Googling around. Yeah, and you can find things from many years ago about whether there was ever a you know attempt to merge with this company that failed or this thing happened or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I can think of one case where I had um, was able to find out information about a company's um, – uh, we knew a company owned a building that it w- didn't need to use most of it, and it was in Manhattan. And um, I was able, by putting in that address and doing a lot of Googling, to find out that there was someone who had for a long time been interested in buying up an entire corner in the city and needed like three different buildings to do it or something. This building was a lot shorter than the others. Um, but they needed to do it for whatever building plans they had in mind. Now, I didn't know if that would eventually go through or not. But it was a multi-hundred million dollar idea that this person had to redevelop this whole thing. And you could just find that originally by starting by looking for the address and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, So you always look at what the properties are and things like that as a value investor. Uh, It's probably easier with those things. We've said we go to um, county records for uh, land and appraisal of them and things like that. We can always find tax appraisals of things. And you were talking about the proxy, the people involved. I mean, that's kind of what Buffett did back in his early days. He wanted to see, like, think, like, how the people think and, you know, what sort of ticked them or what got them going or whatever. Was it money? Was it whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times we'll have mention of each of the customers and things. So, for instance, uh, NACO. NACO has very few customers. So I have a list of all their customers and have looked up all the information on um, all their customers. So I know who they sell to. That's easy because they have specific minds associated with specific customers. But there are some other companies that have uh, relatively few customers, and we'll just say it. A lot of times with very small companies, um, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's there, they don't have the lawyers that are careful about, like, you don't really have to put this in here. But they'll just sometimes be just more open about it. They'll just list like five of their biggest customers or something. Where sometimes when you have a very big company, I've noticed uh, I know who the customer is they're describing. You know, they'll say, yeah. a, a, <laughs> you know, they'll say some big customer that uses our um, jet air, uh, our jets for their uh, wide body aircraft or something. We know who they mean, but they won't even say what the company's name is. Um, things like that. Uh, for some small companies, they'll come right on site and list five or ten companies. Oh, I've seen many 10Ks where they say we compete with companies such as and list like five of them. Yeah. And it could be almost all their competitors or it gives you a really good idea of looking those up. I remember when we were doing research on Hostess Brands, I think we were trying to figure mm-hmm. out like which um, – which product that there's like sold the most or, okay, or something yeah. like that. And I, I can't remember. I don't think it actually broke it down, but when they were talking about what they like do sell, like their brands or right. whatever, you could tell it was kind of going from like biggest to smallest right. in that little table, but yeah. they weren't actually like coming out and saying it or like using percentages yeah. or anything like that. But that's a great example. You can often find things that way with the order in which they say things. Yeah. Um, you realize is the same. Uh, sometimes people do, um, I don't want to overstate how important this is because some people get almost paranoid about seeing things about what happens here. But you can compare um, by looking for the exact same lines in different um, filings each year, whether they've changed things. And I've mentioned that before. I know that I had mentioned um, before when people asked about it um, a while ago, I had said that I thought NACO would have better royalty stuff than in the past because they had for a long time said – we expect royalties to decline and didn't give any reason why they thought it was. And when asked about it, they said, well, we don't, we just don't know what it'll be. So whenever it's high, we say we expect them to decline or whatever, you know, yeah. as in our, but finally then they eventually this past year gave guidance where they said we expect it to substantially increase. Um, and uh, that wasn't so much of a surprise to me because they had sort of changed the language that they've been using a quarter or two before then. And it's a sign when they finally took out something that they'd had in for a really long time that way. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I've talked about that before with things that you get used to certain very standard ways of companies talking about things like we, um, you know, our industry is highly competitive is something that almost all 10 K's put into that. Yeah, sure. So when it's a company like, says, doesn't say that yeah. it's a big clue. Like I was looking at one company recently and, uh, when they described what its products were and stuff, I wasn't really that into it, but I realized in something it said, I was like, Hmm, it's saying something that makes me think this is very not competitive. And then I was able to find something else where they said, we're only aware of one other company that this technology has been licensed to. Yeah. So when it, and from that, I was able to figure out that only two companies make this stuff. Um, so, it, but the tip off to that was the way in which they very much were not using the regular language for saying how competitive their industry was. Yeah, what sure. they're saying, what the risks were in the industry, what they weren't saying is competition, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that obviously stood out to you. And then you go hunt down thinking, oh, you write down, maybe competition's really low in this industry, and then you sort of look it up. It's just yeah. like, I say that to people all the time, that it's like you have to write down like a guess based on, okay, well, this might be the 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 situation here. Like, there's something unusual here. It's You take it sort of as a lead. And when you see, oh, this is... Um, you know, like like normally when you see something about land or something, and you, it's very easy to see. Oh, okay. Well, this was land that they bought in the last ten years in uh, Iowa, someplace. It's probably not that different from you know what it is today. But if they say something like this land was acquired a hundred years ago or something, you know, yeah. in the information, then you, that becomes a thing that you become obsessed with figuring that out because that's such an unusual item in there. Sure. And that's how you do this sort of thing. Yeah. That was interesting. Those great answers. What changes have you made recently to your investing style? Um, hmm. <laughs> Do you start reading 10Ks on the computer instead of printing it out? Uh, no, I still read 10Ks uh, through printouts. Um, I don't know if I've made that many that recently. Um, I could say over time there have been some changes, I guess. Um, the well, well, actually, that's not true. So, Somewhat recently, there have been some changes, and I guess I became more um, interested in some things that were cheap on a sort of asset basis. So, like last year, for instance, in the managed accounts, we had um, over a third or something of the of the portfolio in things that were in some way related to land values of yeah. some kind. And I'd say that was very unusual for me. That's not something I'm usually interested in. I wouldn't say that's a change in my like investment philosophy or something as much as just a reaction to prices for things in that stock prices perhaps were rising a lot faster than land prices. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it, it was becoming harder and harder to buy earnings at a cheap enough price. And so it became attractive to buy assets. Mm -hmm. And I've done that before where like I bought things in Japan or something. Part of that wasn't just that I was excited about something in Japan, but also that it was getting difficult to find things in the U S. Mm -hmm. um, Have you always thought about, um, you know, because when you're managing other people's money, it may be different mm -hmm. than managing your own. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. But like, have you always thought about stock working geometrically over time? Where you know, over time, the business is going to do okay. I mean, did you always think about it in those terms? Yeah, that's true. That that's always this been the same. Yeah. You know? Um, where I was always thinking about it uh, long term that way. Um, certainly the things that we own now are less leveraged than some things that I owned a few Just, years I ago. Mean, purposely. I yeah, mean, purposely. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and again, maybe that's an earnings thing though, a, a price thing, whereas we're able to buy some things, I'm going to find some things at the sort of same PE ratio mm -hmm. that a lot of stocks have, but maybe the ones that have no debt or a little more cash, you know, maybe I feel like uh, the market might be undervaluing, um, safety right now, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it is, I don't know if it's like that my philosophy has changed necessarily in the last few years, 
but it's always changing in response to like what you're getting thrown like what the market the market is changing which just comes on your radar because yeah. yeah right because like i so think like in land the, and then i guess the fact that these levered companies could be under un, yeah. unlevered companies are being realized yeah. by the market like i have not owned tech things and stuff but actually in the very early 2000s i did own some tech things yeah but that was because you had the the, bu- the bubble that burst in 2007 and so you had some become actual value investments like you know in terms of assets and things in the early 2000s so you know that can happen um where it's a response to what the market is is giving you that way um i think that things that are like very consistent earning high quality businesses i like them as much now as i did years ago sure but the market prices that so much higher now i feel than it used to so um you know like people talk about buffett's uh, approach to things and what's his own what he has owned and stuff um part of the reason why he would buy coke in uh in, you know uh, now almost 30 years ago uh is just that that kind of business was cheaper things like coke and gillette weren't valued as high as maybe they should have been and now they're valued at least as high i mean sure. he said that he overpaid for um craft and i think that's true a lot of those food companies were overvalued so um yeah I mean, I have changed a little bit in terms of certain things of avoiding some kinds of risks, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, uh, I, I don't. I think that m- although I have changed in the last few years, it's mostly in response to what things are expensive in the market, which I would say is just being earnings growth. You, really. yeah, yeah, like companies that pay a dividend and have good earnings growth each year, those have become so expensive. Yeah. So I probably bought less of them and more of other things lately. Cool. How would you think about the value of Lyft, Airbnb, and other similar companies? And I'm guessing this is because Lyft just came out saying that they were like, uh, they lost like $900 million last year mm-hmm. or something like that. So maybe that's just top of mind. So that's a very hard question to answer. Yeah. And you might be able to answer better. Um, I, I don't know. I have a somewhat different opinion on. Um, I, well, I think yeah. Airbnb is probably a better company than both yeah. Uber and Lyft. Why? Yeah. It's because a competition. I mean, like you think about like Google and all these other people are kind of like in the self-driving car, mm-hmm. I guess, race, if you could mm-hmm. say. Right. And. Um, Airbnbs like it's kind of like they just set up the platforms, you right? Know, less capital intensive, so mm-hmm. and more scalable, I would say for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, because Lyft is going to go public, and uh, you know, Uber brought in that new CEO mm-hmm. from was that Expedia or somewhere. No, I can't remember where. You remember where? No, I can't remember where. I want to say it was Expedia, but maybe I'm wrong okay. on that. But uh, and and part of his goal was to actually bring the company public as well. So uh-huh. that's go- obviously going to happen. Um, but yeah, I, I would say Airbnb is probably a safer, better company than both of those companies. Yeah, I mean that would probably be true in terms probably of the probable. industry. Yeah, and I've actually like be, I've know. actually listened to interviews where Brian Chesky, uh, I think that's his last name. He's talked about Airbnb and how they're a profitable company and mm-hmm. you know, they're I think it's good business. Yeah, yeah, it's not an industry I know a lot about or something. I mean, I have I. Um, like done some research and analysis of like uh, booking uh, holdings and things yeah. like that, um, which are related to those sorts of things. And um, uh, you know, in terms of like, for example, I guess maybe uh, things like Lyft and Uber, um, those are somewhat uh, unproven in terms of uh, the industry. Yeah, it's an industry that I wonder how much of the. Uh, returns will go to them. When you're talking about Airbnb, it's just in terms of the way that that kind, um, the product economics work, you would expect them to capture a huge amount of the value. One thing I wonder is if um, the system that uh, Lyft and Uber have really means that they'll get a lot of the value and not that it will go. um, I mean, I think primarily, honestly, it goes to 
the consumer. Mm-hmm. And secondarily, I think it goes to the drivers. I, I don't, um, I mean, I, I've actually talked a bit with someone who drove um, and made a, you know, who, who drove and made a fair income from it. And um, how much? That, <laughs> how much? Yeah. Um, I don't even know the, what the average like Uber driver makes or Lyft driver. I'm sure they'll have to talk about it, but I yeah. No uh, well, a big part of it was getting uh, the car from Lyft. Oh, was the ability to have the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And when they changed some uh, uh, rules on that and stuff, you stopped driving for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one that uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think I know enough about the industry that Airbnb is in that I'm would be more comfortable saying that the winner in that industry will have a lot more go to that platform. I just I really don't know in the case of Uber and Lyft if um, so much of the returns will go to them or will go to um, will go to other people. I mean, in some ways, that's probably more disruptive into mm-hmm. society and stuff. So maybe it's good for society. Maybe it's a good that way. It changes the world and everything. But I don't know that it makes them incredibly rich. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that was um, twenty five minutes. Let's see if we let's see if we can get one more question. In okay. Here. Um. Here we go. What are some outstanding positive and negative examples of public firms that are focusing or neglecting to focus on creating long-term shareholder value by refraining from often value-destroying behavior like risky acquisitions, short-term earnings targets, etc.? Of uh, really big companies, I guess we could say probably, um, I would say Amazon, Apple, I'd also say Costco. Mm-hmm. Um, each of those I can think of as doing things that, well, one, refraining from uh, a lot of acquisitions yeah. that they could have done. Um, Amazon has done some pretty big acquisitions. Um, but I still You don't ever hear about Costco doing anything like that. Though. No. Yeah, just kind of stick to their business. And when world. Costco opens new um, warehouses, it would take quite a long time for it to be earning as much. Yeah. Uh, in terms of their uh, as already open warehouses so in terms of like return on equity and stuff it depresses it as they make those investments mm-hmm. um so i would say that those are just three that come off the top of my head um certainly apple's refrained from making acquisitions in a very big way yeah compared to what uh, other companies in there i mean certainly they've been encouraged to do that i would say at lots of different times yeah, that a lot make, of people want yeah. them to buy tesla <laughs> yeah there you go yeah so um, and Tesla is something I can't evaluate in terms of, yeah, they certainly invested a lot. So. What about that? Those antics? Yeah. We need to yeah. have Peter Rab over to come back on and talk about Tesla. Yeah. So, um, in terms of things that are value destroying things, um, I, I mean, I do think there's too much focus on uh, short term, uh, earnings, uh, you know, earnings, um, guidance and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I, I don't even really like the idea of guiding for a year ahead, uh, for a lot of things. Um, I mean, for some things it's okay. Like we talked about NACO. Yeah. Um, NACO is not a competitive business. They, their customers are giving them a lot of ideas about what the plant will produce and stuff. It's okay if they do that. Yeah. I never bother me if BWX technologies talks about what carriers and, and, um, subs and ex- stuff they expect to work on and produce for them for an engineering company. It doesn't bother me in the same way for yeah. the ones that are telling you, we expect to win this much new business that's yeah. where i worry about we expect to sell this much yeah. new stuff to new customers it's, it's the sales part yeah. of it that bothers me sure not here's our backlog Facts. we expect to deliver yeah, yeah. it was funny remember was that last year that warren and jamie diamond went on tv mm-hmm. like trying to campaign against it yeah. and i remember jamie diamond was like yeah if you're trying to beat next quarter's estimates just like turn the jet off for a day or something right. like that yeah. you know yeah um, because then you begin on that an, game, you know? Yeah, yeah, and especially hitting an earnings line that way, you know? Yeah. Where the company says, oh, we just missed a little on revenue, but we made on earnings or whatever. Yeah. yeah that is what he's talking about. <laughs> that is the kind of thing you could do. Yeah. 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 So just th- kind of financial engineer it a little bit. 
Yeah, and there are some particular ones where they want to hit like a certain percentage of it in terms of like, uh, often it's digital or something is the big thing now, but it's something like that. Um, that kind of stuff does just does worry me. Yeah. Um, when it's almost like we want to move people to to something that sounds more high tech or um, of a more new thing, um, you know, you always get it. I mean, sometimes it's good, but like I did a write up of Residio Technologies, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think it's good over time if they move to doing. Um, more stuff on a subscription basis and more, you know, connected things and they can do that. But I don't really like when I feel like sometimes a company like that is trying to present to investors, oh, we're not an old technology company. We're not this old thing that's just your thermostats and your things that all of this is, none of this is connecting stuff. We're like an internet of things or whatever, you know. Um, And so when they say like we want to hit a certain number, next quarter next year a certain percentage of our stuff will be this connected stuff or whatever i don't i mean do the customers really want the connected stuff yeah. right now i don't know you know do the contractors want to sell that put that into the places i don't know yeah yeah that's pretty interesting why do you think they do that because they want the market to think differently about uh, yeah is it kind of like the enron thing how they yes. never want to be known as a trading company because mm-hmm. the multiples are different yeah. yeah no i do i think that some of them get uh do presentations to investors and things and realize that investors are like you know, that's that's old school of whatever things that you're doing, and, yeah. um, you know, and uh, and sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't um, because there's, you know, I mean, think about like Disney or whatever. Years and years ago, I'm sure people were saying to them, oh, you have to get into all this new media things or whatever. Yeah. Then they come out, they they have Marvel and then they put out Marvel movies and they're like, oh, no, that's OK. Now, you know, now <laughs> yeah. that those make a billion dollars, you can keep, do this stuff that is basically the same stuff you were doing the same sort of blockbuster movies you were doing 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, it works out fine. So sometimes, you know, it's a lot of times it's best not to just listen to the, um, analysts that way to listen to the market. Cause the market's often focused on like comparing you to what's the new hot area. Sure. In these few yeah. years, you know, <laughs> interesting. Cool. Well, I think that's a, a good place to stop this week. I want to thank everybody for uh, sending in questions. Of course, again, like I did say, if you want to have a question answered of us, please just go ahead and email either Jeff at gannoninvesting at gmail.com. You can email me at info at focusedcompounding.com or just send me a DM or tweet at me at focusedcompound on Twitter. Uh, we compile mm-hmm. all of them together and then we'll definitely chat about them on the show. If you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo that he sends out for free, there's a premium one for members and then there is a free one as well. Um, go to focuscompound.com, enter in your email, and then you'll receive that in your inbox every single week. Yep. Anything else to add? Uh, you could rate and review the show on uh, the podcast. If app. you want to make Jeff happy, rate and review the show. Okay. Give a comment. We're just trying to make Jeff happy. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.